0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Stuff
1: we're here to talk about in this episode include F-20 and Theogens. The Chicago Mayor's Race. First acts. And Goetia. <laughs> gasoline hang gliders marshmallows spandex that's the worst shopping list i've ever heard i
0: think you mean the best oh you're talking about mad scientist university i had a feeling we should be talking about atlas games at this point in the show
1: mad scientist university is a card game that's exactly like going back to school
0: right because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element
1: Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider.
0: Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one.
1: The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose.
0: Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure.
1: That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards,
0: perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico.
1: And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too.
0: Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.?
1: Not at all! That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too.
0: Now, just like a university
1: essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment.
0: Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen.
1: And then the TA picks a winner.
0: And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free.
1: Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts?
0: If you're playing Mad
1: Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash MSU. That's
0: atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash M like Mike, S like sugar, U like union.
1: Or follow the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: Well, Mom is out of town, so the gaming hut <laughs> <laughs> has a, perhaps, a slightly hazier appearance as we open it. The dice this are is still perfectly being rolled. scholarly
0: haziness. The
1: Doritos are being consumed, if anything, with more alacrity than before. But The, the game itself, are
0: not part of the ritual.
1: <laughs> the game itself is taking on a strange brew of new ingredients. Uh, here, we are going to talk about the wonderful world of entheogens in F20, and I believe, Robin, unless we are going to enter into a new exciting William S. Burroughs-themed subsection of the hut, we're talking about entheogens in play, as opposed to while playing. Correct me if I'm wrong.
0: Yes, this is the characters using entheogens, uh, and not the players, of course, so... Maybe the characters are eating the Doritos. That's right. Uh, I don't know if, well, if there are Doritos in your F20 world, I don't know. So, uh and theogens, for those of you who have uh, not uh, parsed this from context, are psychotropic or mind-altering substances used in religious practice, uh, hence the theo uh, in that term. And although in... F20 Worlds, and F20, for those of you who do not know our lingo, uh, refers to Dungeons & Dragons and all of its direct and aesthetic spawn, uh, whether that be Pathfinder or other D20 games or 13th Age or... Or the OSR. or Yes, or all of the OSR games, which are not uh, technically, you know, directly, legally, open-sourcely descended from that, but share the same aesthetic. The idea is that since the beginning of D&D that we've kind of had a quasi-Western mix of not quite entirely digested elements where you have uh, a lot of the outward trappings of the medieval Christian church bolted onto uh, classical pantheistic worship. So that, uh, you know, you have kind of churchy-looking churches, and originally clerics who could only uh, bash your head in with a dull implement, uh, and uh a lot of the, you know, tithing and so forth. But at the same time, you got to go and choose between a bunch of different cool gods who were maybe at odds with each other, or, or maybe weren't. But what we haven't seen a lot in F20 are cultures that draw their religious practices from uh the cultures in the real world that tend to more directly have people evoking magical assistance for people by drawing on the gods. And those are the the broad mix of cultures that we refer to as shamanic. And in these cultures, uh, very often, though by no means exclusively, one of the ways of achieving the trance state that allows you to get into the spirit realm and start uh, interacting with spirits and drawing on their magical aid is through the use of these entheogens and we can make a list which i'm sure will be incomplete because we're talking extemporaneously so if we leave out your favorite spiritual uh (laughs) uh, substance of i'm I'm sure you'll let us know (laughs) Um, but this ranges from everything like the uh, fly agaric uh, mushroom to uh, ephedra which is used by some asian plains cultures the uh, scythians Uh, had a uh, cannabis sauna that they would go into where they threw cannabis seeds on the uh, uh, burning rocks and uh, achieved a trance state through that.
1: Delaware Indians, among others, used tobacco, of course, and there are plenty of uh, exciting psychoactive substances you can lick or touch in the Amazon rainforest, cane toads being only one of them.
0: Right, and the tobacco used in native spiritual practice is a strain that has psychotropic properties. Also in... um, south america you've got your ayahuasca which is not a single substance but a a uh, brew that yeah. differs from culture to culture that could have all sorts of different psychoactive uh, plants in it
1: peyote in the southwest uh united states and in mexico
0: right and in the uh, dionysian rites, of course alcohol mm-hmm. uh, so basically if there is a mind-altering uh, substance that can help you uh Reach another state of consciousness, particularly a trance state. Uh, there is a culture that uh, uses it and the rights. And there's another kind of interesting wrinkle in that if a culture moves away from its original supply, uh, where the psychoactive plant is grown, sometimes it will then substitute a non psychoactive uh, plant and keep going in the rituals and achieve this state by other means uh, and among those other means there's uh, uh, drumming and music and fast motion and there are all sorts of ways to get into a trance state uh, but they'll continue to use some other substance so there's a culture for example that uh, originally used ephedra uh, but then moved uh, into the indian subcontinent and then substituted rhubarb so that's uh, something you can do if you, uh, I, I don't know if it'll get
1: you to another plane of existence, but it'll make a nice pie. It will. And in a, in a way, that's that makes you close to God, too. Although now we're talking a more Western concept, I suppose.
0: Although now that I'm saying that, I'm wondering, uh, rhubarb leaves are poisonous, so maybe, yeah, so maybe it, there it, is something going and on. And anything
1: there. that's toxic, you know, you can get to the almost killing you, and that will create an altered uh, physical state. Uh, the witch's ointment is theorized to have been... Uh, Belladonna, which of course is toxic in the right amount or the wrong amount, depending on how you're using it. And, uh, in less than that will cause hallucinations and all kinds of other weird, uh, psychoactive effects. Uh, there's a great book by Albert Hoffman, the guy who synthesized LSD for the first time, and Richard Evans Schultes called Plants of the Gods. And it is my absolute go to for, uh, sort of the first responder for your psychoactive entheogen plants. And the sort of you know four one one on on all of them. So if you're or the four two o on all of them. So if you're interested in adding this kind of concept, that's a really great one-stop shop. You go pick up a copy of Plants of the Gods. It's about probably what thirty years old by now, thirty five years old. But it's still you know they didn't change botany. Uh, they may have changed some of the anthropological uh, conclusions that Schultes comes to. But you're going to use it for orcs. So what do you care? <laughs>
0: um, so uh, how does an F twenty game change, Ken? If clerics have to go into a trance state and uh, interact with their uh, gods and the patron spirits who allow them to deal with those gods in order to either learn a new spell or to set up their spells for the day. How does that alter your perspective of an F-20 setting or the feeling of play?
1: Well, there's a, there's a, I mean, it can alter the feeling simply by being evocatively described, it can have literally zero mechanical effect because it's like uh, you have to pray to get new spells or meditate. And sure enough, you can pray or meditate uh, for your eight hours or whatever it is. And then you say, instead of that, you have to, you know, uh, drop some sacred shrooms and talk to the vegetation god and he will give you your new spells. But it's the same eight hours that you're spending not contributing to, you know, keeping watch or doing anything else mechanically in the game. So in that way, you can sort of, You can black box it and just say, oh, my guy is a jaguar shaman and he gets all of his spells through the sacred jaguar and he has to drink his ayahuasca tea or whatever it is, but it's not going to change the effect. One of the things that you can do, though, is that it adds a new class of things to find, things to experiment uh you know the like the potions, you can have various plants that are growing, obviously under the effects of magic they 're going to change so if your helpful herbs your your uh, belladonna your nightshade, or whatever growing underneath the necromancer's window, you might not want to use those just straight for to communicate with the God because you can get a different sort of entheogenic experience, and that 's one of the things that uh people who have done a lot of uh hallucinogens tell me is that. The same hallucinogen doesn't always produce the same result, because a lot of it determines the mood you're in when you do it, the specific dosage, and then also, you know, whether or not people around you are friendly or hostile it has it has a feedback effect, which is why you can use it in groups to create a ritual experience, because even if one person isn't having that kind of trip, the other people are, and they can sort of draw you back into it. So maybe that can be another element, is that there's spells you can only get while solitary, there's spells you can only get... With a large group of, 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 of fellow worshippers or fellow partakers in the temple or the sacred hill or wherever it is that you go to, uh, to, to smoke up and to, and to communicate with the gods. I think another possible thing that you can use this for is as a, uh, another thing for druids to be able to do. I mean, obviously druids would be your, your, your next sort of, uh, midway spot between clerics and, and whatever, but they, since they're so specifically connected to plants and the forest and, uh, things like that, you would think that they would have a natural leg up on entheogen use if you've got entheogen use as a as a mainstream sort of thing, as opposed to just, uh, othering it and making it just the thing that's done by this tribe over here, or just the thing that's done by uh, the the cat people who all you know uh, eat up the magical catnip and roll around and then bask uh, imbues them with power or whatever it is.
0: And uh, when we're talking about adding additional flavor to the spell. Uh, gaining experience, that then allows you to make that sort of a colorful interaction in that the GM can play the spirits that you're interacting with and giving your, getting your spells from. Uh, you probably have a tutelary spirit, your usual helping spirit, who you uh, deal with on a regular basis and is your intermediary with other spirits or with the gods. And so uh, that is sort of a sub-character that uh, you could either create a set of rules to make that your shamanic equivalent of a familiar. And so that's a character that you can interact with and can give information and guidance Mm in character and the process of getting this. You can, uh, the spirit world um, in most cosmologies overlaps with our own so that when you're in trance, you can sort of see the environment you're in, but from the point of view of the spirit world. And that may allow, The DM to give you additional information, and even when you are casting your spells, you could put a shamanic uh, or hallucinatory spin on them. So, uh, your information gathering clerical spells, for example, when you're uh, communing with the gods, you'd be actually physically going into a spirit world to, you know, your talk speak with the dead spell instead of speaking to the corpse. uh, You would go into the spirit realm and interact with their spirit as they're going off to whatever final destination your F-20 cosmology allows for. Uh, you could also decide whether every member of the party is part of a shamanic culture. And if so, uh, do they practice uh, the democratized shamanism of uh, North America in that uh, everybody uh, in a lot of North American native cultures has Uh, goes on a spirit quest uh, at their age of initiation and uh, draws on their own magic and interacts with spirits. Or in other shamanic cultures, there are specialist shamans who uh, typically are revered, but might be considered outcasts in a few uh, particular cultures. Uh, But if everybody is sort of part of this culture, if your whole world or area or region has this approach to dealing with the gods and with magic you could then you know, join everybody into a morning ritual, and that ritual could then convey a group benefit. And so you could have a, another layer of mechanics where each morning you would decide, well, what group benefit are we going for this morning? And what do we have to fulfill when we're out doing things in order to activate it? So it could be as simple a matter as, you know, we all get a plus one armor buff and we do it in the morning, and that's one of your clerical spells Uh, used up or you can have something well if we both hit the same creature then that all gives us an attack bonus for the next uh for the rest of the fight or for the next three rounds or, or whatever it is so that that uh if you want to get in under the hood and start uh tinkering with the f20 mechanics and coming up with crunchy bits that have that particular flavor you could have that idea of a group magical culture that would register both at the color level and on the uh, crunchy bits level, and uh, create that sense that you get in these cultures of community bonding. And so, if you, as you suggest, the uh, if the, everybody in the group isn't approaching it in the same way, or is having a one person is having a bad experience, that can have an impact on the sort of magic you get or the experience you have. Or it can be that if you open up the spirit world and there's all these evil spirits all around, that may tell you that you, a you're in trouble, but once again that can give you information that can lead you to uh, the evil sorcerer but in this culture the sorcerer is someone who is not just memorizing abstract formulae and drawing magic out of uh, the energy spheres but they are trafficking with or have trapped a lot of spirits and so that when you uh, you know for example when you perform detect magic uh, you can tell what magic is operative because you can see and even talk to the spirit that's hanging around keeping that magic going so by having entheogens and a shamanic perspective you're changing the way the cosmology works at least from the point of view of the characters who are uh using it and i think that offers a lot of interesting ways to make magic more interactive and personal you can when you cast a detect magic spell and you see that there's a uh you know, a circle of protection somewhere, you could talk to the spirit of the circle of protection and it's protective. It's not going to be a little guarded about why it's there, but you could maybe get some interesting information out of it. And so that makes, uh, previously abstract things into characters you can talk to. I
1: like, I like the notion that, um, uh, the Samoyeds and the, and the, and the Siberian shamans, are uh are, are all Gygaxian, old school uh, uh strict class separation, but then the Athabascans and the Siwans invent a uh, rune quest as they come across the Bering land bridge. I think that's <laughs> terrific Um, anyway uh you can certainly all of that is 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 a, a great idea I think you can uh more rigorously formalize it. you could have a a, a thing where as you get certain levels of cleric or druid, the act of uh, renewing your spells uh, entheogenically gives you maybe a number of questions you can ask of the spirits in a divinatory fashion. Um, it may give you a buff that you can pass on to another to another player if you're playing. Uh, if as in F20 normally is, you've got a fairly strict uh, gatekeepy sort of. Uh, or it could give um, the the possibility that if everyone is part of the same uh, plant cult. Or, I guess, animal cult, because obviously you can you can get it from animal poison, which raises the interesting question of what sort of shamanic experience do you have uh, for, um, you know, taking uh, very much distilled black dragon acid or something. Uh, there's all manner of, of, of poisonous things in the F-20 uh, bestiary that can be licked or touched or um, uh, distilled down to when they only mostly kill you. Um, so I think that's a whole different batch of of, of uh, questions that you can answer in your own game design.
0: Right. So you're, you're not restricted to the no, real-life no, are not theogens. You can create fantastical and yes. theogens. And it could be that, you know, all of these potions, as you suggest, that if you keep them in their suggested dose, they give you the magical effect. But if you distill them down they may give you revelations or allow you to enter the spirit world or do other things. So that then becomes a a resource management question is, do we save our potion of giant strength to use uh, in a fight the next time the ogres come along? Or are we going to uh, try and use it in this ritual in order to uh, interact with the spirits of the giant stronghold and maybe convince them to give the uh, giants who are abusing their stronghold Uh, a bit of a hard time and give you an edge that way.
1: I think another thing that you can use when you're talking about the shamanic notion of communicating with these uh, uh, other spirits that were cast, this can help you solve one of the, I think one of the big problems with F20 in terms of my own, and maybe it's not that big to anyone else, but to me a world that is littered with cursed magical items, right? Or broken magical items or potions that just, you know, make you grow a giant knoll arm and beat yourself with it or whatever. These sorts of ridiculous things that are only there to provide some sort of notional play balance, I think can be much more interesting. If you imagine them as things that have been, uh, their connection with the spirit world has been broken or tainted in some way. And you can either just go into the spirit realm with a sufficiently high level cleric or druid and repair that by Offering the, the, the item to a spirit as an adopt item. And then the spirit sort of restores it. Or you talk to the spirit of the item and you say, who hurt you, man? What's going on? And he's like, no, I want to be a good ring that lets you be invisible. And I don't want to attract Nazgul, but I was, I was, I've been badly beaten up and cursed by this horrible uh, beholder spirit that's floating around all the time. And if you guys could take care of that beholder, then I'd be the best darn ring you ever did see. And I'd be able to fulfill my proper spirit function and, uh, and, and help you, you know, Navigate through these misty parallel passages of the shamanic realm or whatever it is. And so you have a way to uh, fix these items so you're still not just putting everything on willy-nilly necessarily, but you have a story-based way of dealing with these, uh, the the presence of, you know, a cloak of acid eating or, or something idiotic. Uh, rather than just save it and throw it on an orc next time. I, I think it's just so much better right. and makes the world suddenly seem more reasonable, even if it's the same nonsensical hippogriffs and uh, half-elves world that it was beforehand. Uh, I, th- I think that creating a in-game cosmological explanation for all these broken artifacts and broken uh, magic items will pay huge dividends in making the world feel rational as well as, as you point out, always giving the GM another nice little character bit that they can do. And each uh, problem with with an artifact can lead you to another element of the story that the GM maybe wanted to salt ahead anyway.
0: Right. And if you separate the beholder spirit from the ring that it's cursing and manage to save it, well, you can then loose that beholder spirit, depending on your ethics, on the main magical item wielded by the uh, the orc king in the next encounter. And so once you get the beholder spirit to infest his magical sword, that gives you a bonus or gives him a penalty, I guess, uh, that enables you to overcome him. And as you suggest, this then creates a reason, which is otherwise sorely lacking for the profusion of cursed items, right? That, that just cursing somebody's item by attaching a fell spirit to it becomes a pretty common thing. And, you know, you might even add, you you would obviously add clerical spells that allow you to attach and detach spirits from physical objects, and then you would have a list of the different spirits and what they did to those objects. And so, uh, you know, when you cast your identify spell, one of the main things you're identifying is not just what the spirit is in the magic item that makes it work, but what's the tapeworm spirit wrapped around it do and how do you get the tapeworm spirit off and can you transfer it uh, to something else and that um, adds another sort of dimension to the idea of the thief character who's always messing with everybody else's stuff if he's a, a shamanic thief he can then you know stick a tapeworm Spirit on your magic sword, and then ask you a toll in order to take yeah, it off, although
1: that, that perhaps we don't want to be encouraging uh f twenty players to come up with new ways to screw with each other using entheogens because that's when the cops get called <laughs> Yes, well
0: I, I'm not saying we're, we're they're already encouraged to do it by the nature of the being an early f20 player <laughs> but uh here's a more creative here's, way to be here's a, 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 old, a dick about well, it
1: well there you go We're nothing if not a full service podcast i guess
0: uh well and once we've come to that i guess it's time to move on to the next segment This episode is also brought to you by The Bones, the book about dice.
1: As opposed to your femurs and phalanges, et al. Although it does amply cover antelope ankle bones. I can't imagine who would have written that. The Bones is about dice and how they make us crazy. How people audition their dice at the game store before buying them. And
0: scream in agony when a 20-sider falls on the floor and wastes a 20.
1: And how people train their dice by resting them on the Best best numbers!
0: Or put them on the bad numbers
1: so the dice get tired of them. So The Bones is a book about weird dice superstitions and customs. But it's not just a glossary, it's history, philosophy, theory! And the time I was putting together dice for Paul Zega's game Bacchanal. Spoiler alert! It's got essays from folks like Will Wheaton... John Kavalik, Chuck Wendig, and more.
0: And it's published by our friends Will Hindmarch and Jeff Tidball at Game Playwright, publishers of Hamless Hit Points and Things We Think About Games. Here's the best news about the bones. The good people at Game Playwright recently came into a bunch of printed copies they thought had been sold long ago. And now they're blowing them out. Because better to put them in people's hands than to let them freeze in some godforsaken Minnesota warehouse.
1: So the deal is this. Order now and you get 66% off. You get a brand new essay and you get super cheap shipping all around the world. And a free PDF copy of the book. Plus a coupon for a discount on Evil Hat's Deck of Fate.
0: You can buy it now at GamePlaywright.net slash Bones Deal. The clash of opposing worldviews, the... Grim, susurrus of confirmation bias, and this handy gavel I have here to bang on the table suggests that we've once more entered the ideologically divided confines of the politics hut. And those of you who are long-time listeners to the podcast know that we got a surprising amount of mileage out of <laughs> Toronto <laughs> municipal politics.
1: I don't know if it was that surprising. I, I think... The world this, came that together. That <laughs>
0: story went on a lot longer than any of us would have guessed when we started. That's because true. Of, uh, it, we forget in retrospect, but the very first segment was about him possibly losing the mayoralty over a $1,500 uh, campaign, an undisclosed campaign. I guess payment. like all
1: great epics, it seems inevitable uh, in, in retrospect, but at the time was a, was a revelation from the gods. Indeed. Yes.
0: Uh, and we have promised on and off that we would turn the tables onto the... Uh, Theoretically more, more interesting
1: city across the lakes. Theoretically more interesting,
0: <laughs> certainly, of much more long-standing <laughs> repute, the thorny world of uh, Chicago municipal politics. And uh, we finally have a rack or two on which to hang that hat, which is to say that uh, Rahm Emanuel, or the fighting Emanuel's uh, mayor of uh, Chicago, has uh, done something kind of unprecedented in the supposedly locked-down world of Chicago mayors. And he's facing a... Uh, runoff. Yes. And uh, this uh, I don't know whether this portends perhaps in uh, 80 or 100 years, the introduction of democracy to Chicago. But uh, so, Ken, how far back do you have to go uh, to tell, say, our listeners in uh, Finland or Turkey about Chicago municipal politics in order for them to understand what's currently going
1: on? Well, I'm not sure that anyone who's been here their whole life understands what's currently going on, which is part of what makes it fun. Um, as my, as, as my friend Zach said, uh, at, which may be the best explanation of all, uh, Rahm Emanuel saw his shadow and so we get six more weeks of election. Um, but, uh, Chicago, uh, has been a great American city run like most great American cities have been by one or another sort of electoral machine pretty much since its inception. Its very first uh, sort of civic crisis was caused when the Quaker machine that ran the city tried to uh, impose uh, drinking hours and enclosed bars, and there was a riot amongst the Irish and German population. I just want
0: to bask in the phrase Quaker machine. That is so so delightful.
1: And so ethnic politics and arguing over who gets theirs has been a long... Uh, standing tradition in the city. Uh, it is, it used to have a great and powerful Republican machine, which is what made Abraham Lincoln president, among other things. It then had a period, an interregnum, a, a period of, of great and exciting warfare back and forth, which included actual hand grenades being thrown in what was known as the pineapple primary, uh, in the election of, I believe, 1924 between Dewar and Big Bill Thompson, who was the last uh republican mayor of chicago uh,
0: back in the days when politicians would be called you know big bill thompson or big bill shaky thompson. jones or <laughs>
1: <laughs> well we've we, you have already enjoyed uh hinky dink kenna and bathhouse john coughlin yes yeah, so so i was trying to bring back. big bill my... is is at the time i'm sure people said oh what a boring nickname yeah. <laughs> it just refers to his size that's value that's, neutral why, that's nothing his size and outsized personality uh, so anyway, the reform mayor, reform democratic mayor, uh, Anton Cermak unified all of the Democratic Party machines into one and became mayor, uh, in 1931 and was assassinated in 1933 by Giuseppe Zangara, who al- allegedly was aiming at FDR and missed. And the Democrats have run Chicago ever since. There has never been a Republican mayor ever since. So you have to remember that in Chicago, third party, like, um, you know, the Libertarians are, or the Peace and Freedom Party, or, or whatever your hilarious third party happens to be. And if you're in a large American city, perhaps it's also the Republicans. But the uh, uh, every real election since then has been between the machine and a faction that wants to replace, hijack, or every now and again, destroy the machine. And, and the machine that Cermak set up became... The, the, uh, ra- rose to its greatest power under, of course, uh, Richard Daly first, the great mayor Richard Daly, who is uh, immortalized, uh, in song and story, uh, as well as the 1968 Democratic National Convention and other hilarious activities on his part. And then his son. So the,
0: the, are the two factions, uh, under both putatively under the realm of the oh yeah absolutely
1: uh, they're 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 both Demo- they're all Democrats but the party organization so, so
0: when you say it's a three party system two of those parties are, the, are, are the Democrats, Democrats yes
1: the, okay which is why it's so much fun and until 1995 uh, I couldn't actually cast a meaningful vote in Chicago mayoral elections because I'd show up and the Republican primary would be between the guy who performed as a clown. <laughs> and the slightly less credible Republican candidate. <laughs> yes,
0: and the guy who, who was a clown just to vocationally. <laughs> right, not yes, who so was,
1: I, I, I forget what he was. The, but the anyway. literal
0: versus the metaphorical clown. Exactly.
1: It was Spanky the Clown was the uh, perennial <laughs> Republican candidate. So anyway, it was uh, it was a, an exciting exercise in civic futility to watch the, the lines up for the, for the uh, primaries because I live in the Great Fourth Ward of Chicago, which, because it is a lakefront South Shore ward, It includes a big chunk of the University of Chicago community, is a goo goo ward, a more liberal ward than most wards in Chicago, and is therefore often a battleground between the machine, which is strongest in, uh, the, uh, the, the, the near west, near south, and north sides, uh, versus the, the, the goo goos, who are usually the, the strip of Hyde Park and the lake for, and the lakefront liberals. Uh, along the north side in like lakeview and uh and places like that so so people who vote for the
0: machine are voting for the machine because they uh receive its patronage
1: well they either they receive its patronage or they recognize that the only thing worse than a Chicago Democrat running uh a city is a Chicago liberal Democrat running a city because you then get none of the advantages of actual representation, and you still have. Uh, and, and you also get none of the advantages of anything working. We had a, a great interregnum after the death of the, of the first mayor in which there was uh, Mayor Daly, in which there was a lot of mayors who tried to sort of reassemble the machine to one or another degree of success. Mayor Byrne probably was the, the was the most capable of those, Jane Byrne. And then after she uh, left the scene, there was another great squabble uh, that led to an actual Republican threat. Um, uh, from a guy named, I think Bernard Upton who was a dentist and he was a threat because the, uh, African Americans and the Hispanics actually unified against the, 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 the white ethnic machine in Chicago and ran, uh, Harold Washington as their sort of goo goo candidate for mayor and because the machine was you know, sort of coming off its civil war, they managed to get him elected. And it was one of the most horrifically racist elections in Chicago history. I mean, big Bill Thompson, back when the Democrats would tease him by singing a uh, bye-bye blackbird at his rallies because they, um, uh, they, they knew that he depended on the African-American vote. And, uh, I think it was probably the most racist election in Chicago since 1928. Uh, that was the, the, people would go around and stick uh watermelon stickers on lampposts and things with the, with the, uh, no slash through them uh to to say where they didn't want Harold washington to be pres- uh, to to be mayor and it was just god awful and he won and then he died in office and there was another interregnum and following that the second mayor daly richard m daly uh rose and sort of reunited the the old ways and uh ran the city pretty much from the time that i got there so i guess 87 election or or 88 89 right around then i, I don't know, I think i got there before he took over so he he ran it until he left office in 2011 and was replaced, uh, by Rahm Emanuel. And he, he resigned. He did, or not resigned. He simply said he wasn't going to run again. And everyone was wondering what that meant. And then Rahm came in and there was another fairly contested primary because the machine didn't really know who it wanted. And lots of people thought that this was a good point of weakness to sort of insert their own guy in
0: right and and rom's background is he was a uh was chief of staff for
1: for obama for obama and he was um uh, the head of the uh democratic i think it was the uh house campaign committee something like that congressional campaign committee he was one of the architects of the of the democratic seizure of 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 power in uh the in the House of representatives uh during the the bush administration and then moved from that triumph into being Obama's chief of staff and then moved from there to become mayor of Chicago, which sort right. of surprised everyone because he's a he is...
0: famously splenetic guy. He's not yes. someone he's the sort of sweary, phone throwy kind of uh figure who uh thrives usually Behind the scenes in American politics. Mm-hmm.
1: Charged out of the shower once entirely naked to uh, berate a, uh, a a feckless underling or, or political rival for something. Right. Uh, and, and he's tiny, too. He's just, he's just a micro-sized guy. Uh, and so one can't even imagine what that was like. Although I'm sure that uh, many Chicagoans have imagined what that was like.
0: Right. And I'm sure an inspiration for many of the scenes in Veep, which is why that show is the one show about American politics that I can watch because it bears a closer resemblance a to the actual American political <laughs> sy- system than does House of Cards or or uh, West Wing. And so, uh, you've got this uh, guy coming from the Obama administration, not your typical politician, and how does he do when he uh, becomes mayor of Chicago?
1: Well, uh, obviously that is a fraught question. He is not uh, Mayor Daley. He is certainly not even Mayor Daley II, um, in terms of being able to unite the machine underneath him. The machine right now seems to be going through one of its periodic fallow moments, which is why one of the reasons he's in a runoff instead of getting an overwhelming re-election. So is he is he machine or is he idealist? Oh, he's... Um, a is machine. Ram is, is, is very much the machine's guy. When he came back to Chicago to run, there was a little tiny matter of him not legally living in Chicago. And apparently you have to live in Chicago to be the mayor of Chicago, which well, is I one of our little quaint be. beliefs. And... There was a fairly impressive lawsuit mounted against his ability to be uh, a candidate for mayor, and that was pretty clearly like the shadow place where the machine was deciding do we want this guy and where Rom was making whatever offers he was going to make. Uh, Rom is absolutely the machine's guy now, um, very much because they don't want another interregnum uh in which you could get. You know, a Harold Washington. You could get a reforming mayor from the Goo Goo wing of the of the Democratic Party coming in.
0: So, um, why did he wind up in a runoff? Is that a sign of a resurging uh, reformist uh, wing?
1: I, I think it's more a sign, as I say, of a weak machine at this at this point. I think a lot of. Uh, The guys who uh, wound up coalescing under him in 2011 were not super happy. Rahm also is coming into power in a time when Chicago does not have the vast fountainhead of largesse that it did, so the machine is less able to provide patronage for some of its uh, vassals. And also, he ran uh, into a fairly serious uh, crime crisis and a hugely serious pension crisis, and decided to do something about the pension crisis, which angered both the cops, which made the crime crisis worse, and the teachers' union. And he then took to the streets against the teachers' union, but backed down at the last minute. He did not continue with his his plan to basically break the teachers' union on on a millstone, because I think he did not think that he necessarily had the full support of the machine to do it. And that made the teachers union very, very angry. And for a while, it looked like the, the, uh, head of the teachers union was going to, uh, run against him as the candidate of the goo-goos. But she developed, uh, I think cancer, some sort of, uh, very bad health problem and was not able to run. And so they, uh, the, the goo-goos looked around and they found a guy named, uh, Jesus Chewie Garcia, who is a, uh, Cook County commissioner. Um, and, uh, because the county and the city have parallel bureaucracies so that they can, uh maximized the pelf uh the, I- involved and uh garcia managed to come in second in the runoff with o'manuel getting not quite 45% of the vote i think which is a crazy slap in the face to the machine and it's not just rom because you could say oh well it's because no one likes rom because he's a, a nasty-minded little um uh, cursing guy but pe- people like uh dick mel who was the the reason that rob Blagojevich existed at all is that he was Dick Mel's son-in-law, right? And
0: Rob Blagojevich, other famously uh, colorful Chicago figure. Just to recap for yes. those, uh, it,
1: indicted uh, Illinois governor and the guy who attempted to sell Obama's Senate seat uh, when Obama became president. He had to leave his Senate seat, and Blagojevich thought, "Well, I need to raise some quick cash to get out of this indictment problem. I'll just <laughs> offer the Senate seat for sale, and yes. that will that will work out really well that for can't me." Possibly have. <laughs> negative His.
0: repercussions His. if I'm already under investigation and perhaps someone's running running The
1: degree to which the Illinois Republican Party is feckless can be demonstrated by the fact that Lagoyevich was able to beat the Republican Party in a statewide election after having been governor for one term. Uh, he was god-awful, and the reason he existed entirely was that he was Alderman Dick Mel's son-in-law, and Dick Mel's daughter was also forced into a runoff in her own ward, in, in Dick Mel's ward. So... The, I mean, if the, the, this guy is this sort of the, the the core of the machine, he's like the the William Marshall uh, of the machine, and he can't get his own ward delivered. That means it's not just Rom. That means that it is, I think, a period where between the economic uh, downturn, between the huge pension crisis that is crowding out all other ability to spend money in the city, and just between you know the the, the fact that nothing human lasts forever and everything collapses, uh, you have. Uh, A a period, as we've seen previously in Chicago history, where the machine is losing some of the the feeling in its extremities and some uh, some fairly major figures were not able to to get back in. Patrick Daly Thompson, the the mayoral nephew, who is now the the new hope of the dynasty after the son of uh, Richie said he was not interested in politics, having come back from i think serving in iraq and deciding that there were many more important things than being um, uh, helping people steal concrete um and so uh, uh patrick daly thompson was is, is in a runoff the cook county assessor couldn't get he uh, who's also the chairman of the cook county democratic party couldn't get his own guy a, as alderman um and that has wound up weakening uh tony preckwinkle who was my former alderman, who was ascended to the heights of uh, the Cook County Board, and she was seen as sort of the figure who could unite the factions because she was faultlessly goo-goo politically, but was good enough at her job to stay really sweet with the machine. And so it was thought that maybe she could be the machine with the human face or the reformer who could get things done, but now she can't get someone through an aldermanic election. So it's you know, it. we're all in. We have no idea what's uh, going on. But I suspect it is that the machine is, uh got lazy, got uh, sloppy, and has gotten poor.
0: So do you see this as being like in another cyclical thing where the machine is going to inevitably re-coalesce the next time that funds start flowing in from the state or federal government? Or is this a move towards a post-machine politics in Chicago.
1: Well, always the temptation with everyone in political prognostication is to say we are living in new times that are different from the old times. We are living in a, a time of change when my unique perspective actually matters. I do not believe that anyone will ever live to see the end of machine politics in Chicago because, again, we've literally been run by the same machine with one or two interregnums since 1931. There is no prayer... I think, for democratic politics in the small d sense to really take hold until Chicago is just rapidly restructured or entirely restructured as a city, much less as anything else. Um, The the pension crisis is not going away. It's going to keep pressure up on it. I think that we may be seeing a brief interregnum, but the machine will still have, you know, it'll have what it had, which is You know, connections with the the construction industry, police unions, uh, private labor supported Emmanuel. Uh, There's lots of parts of the city that very much depend on a reliable sense of knowing who you know to get anything done. And if that changes, then none of those guys can make their parts of the city work, and they don't like that. And, And that has been true, like I say, since 1931, and to an extent since, you know, the Irish and the Germans threw the Quakers out. In the 1850s, because the the city has to function on this web of connections, because otherwise it would be drowned under regulatory UKs, the way that uh, San Francisco or uh, or or other cities have been. Uh, it, it's it's entirely this sort of informal knot of connections that gets anything functioning at all in the city, and so I don't see it going away anytime soon. But I think it it would be it w- it might be possible that we see a sort of a a, a Washingtonian interregnum or maybe if Tony Prequinkle can set her foot right a, a new um uh sort of unified field as everyone sort of realizes the pie is smaller, comes up with a new way to divvy it up, and uh the the selected outcasts are thrown into the into the outer darkness and the new uh dogs sort of recreate the machine around it because that's been its strength over over time after time after time. Uh Richie Daly's great ability was to bring the Hispanics into the machine And make them part of the machine. And that, I think, is another possible reason that uh, Chuy Garcia came sort of out of nowhere is because uh, he's obviously got a got a Hispanic constituency.
0: So uh, your money is in Rom to win the runoff.
1: Rom has, I think, another 30 million dollars to spend some ungodly amount of money in his campaign budget. He's got President Obama, who already came down and cut a big gooey. A kissy face commercial for rom and will come back again if it if it needs to happen because the last thing Obama needs is 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 Rom to start remembering stuff. Uh, so <laughs> that will split the black vote and I suspect that uh in April Rom will, will 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 squeak it out. Um although I would not have predicted, for example, that Dick Mel would would wind up with his daughter in a runoff. So I, I think it's going to be kind of interesting times and maybe it will be get Rom over the finish line and then that will actually the the stresses of who doesn't get campaign money may cause more fracturing in the machine and i think a lot of the question is is rom going to be running as a one term mayor uh after this is it is this going to be the notion that he's out of here in 2019 to to run for governor or to or to do something else or does rom see it the way that the dailies sees it dailies see it for all their faults that mayor of chicago is literally the most important job in the world and if you can't do that you know why do anything else? You know, why Why accept a lateral transfer to president, as someone once said?
0: So this segment's running long already, but uh, is the revelation of the Homan Square scandal, which is the uh, so-called police black site where uh, suspects are often hauled and kept away from their lawyers and, as the allegations go, put in stress positions and or tortured, is that something that can get any sort of purchase in a political landscape where they're is no accountability. There's merely loyalty to your patrons.
1: I have a hard time believing that it can get purchased in the city of Chicago. I mean, it can certainly be used as fodder, but the goo-goos are the people who would already be mad about that. And if this were a new thing, if we in Chicago had never, ever, ever had uh, every single precinct with a back stairs that people would be taken down to not go past the booking desk, Um, if Bloody Maxwell, the... The the eleventh um, uh, uh, precinct house ha- had not had a basement that was literally lined with trenches, so the blood could run all out while you were torturing prisoners in the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies. If this were not part of the Chicago bought into fabric, I think it might make a bigger deal. Obviously, it would be a, a game changer in Omaha or Oklahoma City or Indianapolis or or sort of a decent city. But, but here
0: it's just part of the Chicago way. In, in
1: Chicago, it's like. Yeah, police are beating people and not booking them. We know that because we are more than ten and live in Chicago. Uh, this is, you know, shocking news to the Guardian, which wants to turn it into an indictment of Bush. Which would be great if President Bush had been running Chicago in the 1880s when this system was set up.
0: Um, so I guess uh, we have a, a to be continued on yes, this. We'll, we'll see, see how. how uh,
1: I, I, my money, like I say, is Ron pulling it out. Um, uh, with possible angry vituperation. Uh, to come later. And then the big question always is, does he run for re-election? Does he announce for re-election? I would not have put money on him announcing for re-election this time. I thought it was kind of a good sign that he thought that there was a, a, a get-out-of-jail plan that could be done um, to, to, to fix the city fiscally. But uh, maybe <laughs> maybe he had some some sort of thing that didn't come through. Or maybe he figures that this time he's got nothing to lose and he's really going to break the teachers' union. I don't know what's going to happen, but it... But I, I my money is ROM coming in.
0: Well, and that remains to be seen. It's time for our next segment.
1: map lovers scale realms rpg maps and plans has a brand new kickstarter running from march 2nd to april 2nd
0: the campaign features full color high quality maps with 3d structures and landscaping with a hex or square option
1: the name behind scale realms is jeff james a professional cad draftsman and dc supervillain
0: jeff hopes that fellow gamers uh, mini makers and rpg fans will help him raise two thousand dollars to purchase the necessary computer to complete these maps and more.
1: To pledge a donation and to learn more about Jeff James and his plans to rob every jewelry store in Central City in an hour, oh, and his Kickstarter campaign, go to scalerealms.com and click on the link. The Chudder of IBM Selectric Keys, for some odd reason, except that it sounds better than anything else. uh The Gurgle of Bourbon, for the obvious reason, and the um uh, click of the desk lamp coming on tell us that we've entered the swank confines of the hut where we write in the good fashion of howness. Yes, it's how to write good, and given that great beginning, Robin, obviously you're going to talk about what a great beginning that was, and perhaps great beginnings in general, or are you talking about something else?
0: Well, we've talked about great beginnings in general uh, in a previous segment of How to Write Good, and this is uh, something we put a pin in for future discussion, and that is the uh, particular uh, sort of beginning in which the first act shows you the character's status quo. So, we're talking about an act structure here because that's uh, an idea that has uh, achieved a lot of Uh, weight in screenwriting and I would argue first of all off the top that there are big flaws in always using this model uh, which are that commercial film narratives become really predictable Mm -hmm. uh, because everyone over relies on this but in terms of uh, it's a standard story structure that goes way beyond uh, films in which we initially see a character in a status quo and then there's a big turning point at which the character is no longer uh, either willing or able to continue according to the status quo and is thrown into crisis and that is the turn that begins this uh either the story proper or uh and we're going to look at the question of how relevant that is today so in both of the big uh, Tolkien uh novels for example in both the hobbit and in uh, repeated in The Lord of the Rings, you start off with a section of the ideal status quo in the Shire, where everything is peaceful and cabbagey and wonderful, and then uh, events intrude to require the protagonist to go on a heroic journey, and to move from the beginning of uh, innocence to experience. Another very popular version of that these days is the sort of comedy structure uh, in which The narrative is about a man moving from man child to actual grown up, or I think even more trite, the uptight, isolated character who learns to loosen up and uh, interact with the world. And so quite often in both of those setups, where basically the status quo is portrayed as a trap that the character eventually has to break out of event, uh, first of all, unwillingly, and then at the beginning of the turn that moves you toward the climax uh, willingly, uh, these are all situations in which you see the character's status quo. And the question is, how long now as a writer are you going to spend if you've got something where the character the character is confronted with a loss of the status quo and either needs to regain it or find a new, better, more tenable status quo, how long are you going to spend uh, setting that up? And so there, uh, I think our attention spans have contracted as we've absorbed more and more narratives as a contemporary audience, and that you can get away with contracting that status quo more and more. And how much you're going to do that, of course, depends on the overall length of the piece that you're writing. If you're writing a short story, you might want to introduce the status quo in a couple of uh, paragraphs, whereas uh, in a novel, it might be a, a number of chapters. But I know that since I have uh, many years ago swore to put down books that weren't really grabbing me, a number of books that I stopped reading are because the author is not moving quickly enough from the status quo to the story proper.
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of it also depends on individual style, because um, my, ex- my example for this would be the mystery novels of P.D. James, which by and large, and obviously she's good enough that she played change-up every now and again, but with P.D. James, what she would do is she would lay out what was going on in, in the in the setting, uh, wherever the murder was going to take place. And there was going to be chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters of this. And uh, Detective uh, Dalgleish might not be there at all, or he might be there writing poetry or doing something not detective-y for a while. And you build up the whole status quo, but James is introducing little elements into it that tell you, the status quo is going to be endangered it's going to be endangered it's not stable this is going to there's it's not just all walking up by the windmill at night uh with no uh lights and no one around to hear you cry so there's, there's all a lot kinds of stuff foreshadowing of the yeah. of the act break but it's not even a foreshadowing so much as laying pipe i think uh more clearly uh of the it's foreshadowing because it's a pd james novel you know someone's going to die and you're always on the lookout for it but to the extent that that's paradolia and to the extent that's pd james foreshadowing, I think, is an interesting question that maybe we don't have time for. But, you know, in some sense, the first act of a P.D. James novel can take up three quarters of the book because the guy doesn't even get murdered until two thirds of the way through. And so if you're P.D. James, yeah, you can get away with that. Other mystery writers may, as you suggest, want to introduce it in one line. Um, Lord Selwyn looked out of his library and was happy then, you know, bang, he fell down with the poker The rock in his came back. through the window, and right, there was a exactly. seagull tied to it, and the right. seagull said, nevermore. You will die, um, yeah. Lord Selwyn, uh, um, because you were an unconvincing protagonist, and we don't like your status quo. Uh, and so the, uh, and so the question, I guess, a lot of it is how much can you put into that first act that ostensibly is about celebrating normalcy and presenting the status quo? And how much can you put in that will either provide a payoff or will just be genuinely interesting and entertaining to read, creating a status quo that you, the reader, want to continue so that when it is shattered by the act, you're not saying, oh, finally, uh, dwarves have come to drag you out of this miserable cabbage patch. But, oh, man, I wanted to read more about these people's lives and and whether or not um, uh, Jasper was going to get into that good school or whatever, right?
0: Right, because one of the challenges uh, with... Uh, setting up the status quo at the beginning uh, and keeping it engaging is that if the status quo is not under threat yet, you have not yet activated the reader's desire for a particular outcome, which you can then threaten or reinforce Mm -hmm. by creating that beat structure of uh, emotional ups and downs that I talk about so extensively in Hamlet's Hit Points that is the core of conventional reader engagement. So that if you are basically setting up the status quo as uh, stultifying uh, or uh, doomed, once the reader knows it is either one of those two things, it's time to move on because then you are letting the reader's meta knowledge of what it is that you're doing as a creator get ahead of what's actually going on. So that as soon as you've established that this is a stultifying or untenable status quo, it's time to hit that hammer. And, uh, you know, in case of lack of narrative, break glass, you do that. And then the narrative starts and you have it threatened. Mm-hmm. Um, referring to inspector Dalglish is an interesting, uh, case because, uh, he is an iconic hero. He's someone who, mm-hmm. uh, repetitively, uh, engages in a uh, serial adventures in which, uh, order is threatened and then shattered by a murder. And then it's his job as an iconic hero, as it is the job of all iconic heroes to restore the status quo Uh, At the end and to uh, restore order of uh, and what order is varies wildly, depending on uh, whether it's Tarzan or Dalgleish or Mm -hmm. Doctor Who or, or, you know, pick your hero. Their iconic ethos is to restore order in a particular way and to a particular sort of order. But uh, because of that, you do not want to spend an enormous amount of time on that status quo, because it's not about a character arc in which, the character uh, has two dramatic poles and the conflict between them is resolved at the end of the narrative, the way it is between all of the innocence and experience stories that you get uh, with hobbits or uh, with uh, Luke Skywalker, for example. Mm
1: -hmm. And and I think that's partly why uh, so many of the, of the characters in in James's novels wind up being so really fully fleshed out and well-defined and dramatic characters because they are in a dramatic story of their own that's going to have a murder in it and they're going to change and grow as people and Adam Dollgleish comes in literally almost as a as a formal outsider uh as the iconic uh who is not affected by their petty squabbles literally because he's a police inspector he doesn't care who's sleeping with who and um uh can then restore the status quo while still allowing personal growth and change to have happened all around him and i think that's what makes a james mystery uh, sort of more uh, satisfying to read uh, in a lot of ways than sort of a quick, you know, one-and-done Ellery Queen sort of bang, you know, uh, bad guy library, locked door, uh, et cetera, which can be great fun in its own right, or a Nero Wolf story, which can, you know, approach high art in a lot of ways, but is not actually about anyone's character changing ever, ever, ever.
0: Right. And so what you've got with P.D. James is a, a world, I guess, where there's an iconic figure who's sort of more of a force of nature, but that it's about the... Dramatic interactions between the characters who do not recur, whose stories are resolved within uh, each novel, uh, one of which is resolved by getting a knife getting between murdered. The ribs yeah. or
1: getting murdered. Yeah, the um, I think actually talking about we're we're probably crazy long in this segment, but I do want to put a pin in the question of an iconic hero whose job is not to restore order, because obviously people like um, uh, Jerry Cornelius are iconic heroes whose job is to destroy order. And maybe that there's something to be said about that in a later segment where we could spend all that time. But I don't want it to sound like all iconic heroes are are stuffy Republicans who just come in and lower tax rates and fix things.
0: Yes, or order means something different in this this context. And uh, Jerry Cornelius, like a lot of uh, counterculture heroes, his job is to restore the true pastoral order that was uh, obscured by the false order of the control freaks. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and you know, he's straight out of William S Burroughs and that's, you know, the war against control is uh, completely from, uh, uh, Burroughs. I did want to move back to one example of a structure that handles this uh, really well. And that is the original star Wars. The star Wars is a four act film. And the, although it is putatively about a character who is, trapped in a stultifying status quo, the narrative does not begin with Luke Skywalker hanging around on Tatooine being bummed that he's not going to get to the Academy. The narrative begins with Vader's uh, ship attacking uh, Leia's ship and the message being put in R2-D2. And the protagonist of the first act of Star Wars is Mm -hmm. R2-D2. And it is only when he arrives... Uh, And with him brings the destruction of Luke's uh, status quo that Luke takes over as the protagonist who then undergoes the story arc of moving from innocence to experience. And that uh, is a way to keep the story exciting uh, while, uh, you know, you immediately introduce the hope and fear, you know, are the guys who are literally in the black helmets or the guys in the white helmets beside the guy with the black helmet uh, going to catch the good guys and then uh, sometime later you bring in the question of is this guy going to move from uh, innocence to experience Um, and so uh, I think that allows us to fill in some of the things that we didn't get to in our last uh, discussion of uh, endings and uh, we can declare this segment to have its ending Creaking stairs that take us up into the second floor parlour of the consulting occultist resound with a particularly promotional spring in the occultist step, as he's here not just to tell us about Goetia, but about his Ken Writes About Stuff Chapter on the Goetia. Uh, Ken Writes About Stuff, of course, is Ken's uh, monthly uh, subscription based uh, PDF of Pelgrane style goodness, which you can get by going to uh, PelgranePress.com. And uh, we talked a bit about the Goetia a couple of episodes ago uh, in respect to a Ken's bookshelf segment because he picked up yet another. A book on the Goetia, but since we can't assume that our listeners faithfully listen to everything in exact episode order, can can you start us off by uh, once again giving us the 101 on what the Goetia is?
1: The Goetia is, you know, what it has come to mean now anyway, is it is the magical art of summoning and trafficking with demons as practiced in uh, Western Europe since say the 16th century and Western European inspired traditions. Uh, the Golden Dawn obviously comes in some extent out of Goetic magic because Goetic magic comes out of its same uh, Renaissance uh, magical uh, tradition. Uh, Goetia, the word, comes from the Greek word for sorcery, which is handy, and that word goes... In this uh, business,
0: the more synonyms for sorcery
1: the better. Absolutely. Do they cast
0: Dwiomers
1: with their Goetia? I do not believe that you cast Dwiomers with your Goetia. I think that um uh you may or may not be able to cast uh cantrips, um, or or possibly even let's see what what I want to say, Mantises, something like that. Um, but uh I think Dwiomers are right out. Uh on the other hand, that's right in. Uh is anything uh spelled that comes from a grimoire, and so Therefore, Goetia is all about your grimoires because that's where you list all the demons that you can summon and all of their uh, little signs and symbols and sigils that you need to draw on the floor for awesome hammer film style uh, visuals while you do it.
0: So, uh, what was your process of turning the vast storehouse of Goetia information in your brain and in your external brain, i.e., your library, uh, into a, a gumshoe? It's a gumshoe zoom, right?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a gumshoe zoom that. Uh, basically gives you extended uh, rules for demon summoning, and then uh, some ways to convert the sort of uh, core text of the Goetia, the Led uh, into a game source book by giving you game stats for all the demons in it, So, or rather a way to translate the demons from it into game stats.
0: Now, is this for uh, a particular extant gumshoe game, or is this for your uh, bespoke game that requires Goetic magic?
1: Uh, This is for any game that requires Goetic Magic. There's a sidebar about uh, overlapping it with the Cthulhu Mythos. The Magic is fairly similar to uh, Cthulhu Magic. It it requires a success in a series of tests. Um, The Cthulhu Rituals, if you'll uh, remember, involve a sort of extended contest against the inertia, quote-unquote, of the the entity. Um, In this version, I took that basic structure and tried to give each of the tests that you have to make its own flavor... So you wind up having to make five tests for a successful demon summoning, and that is the inscription test to draw the pentacle, the invocation test to call on a demon, the evocation to actually force it to appear, the constriction to make it do what you want, including not kill me, please. Yes, crucial step. Well, they're all crucial. That's what's fun about it. And abjuration, which is get it to go away when you're done. Um, And uh, you can't really skimp on any of them, which adds a sort of resource management. What do we want to do? There's never going to be enough magic uh, points really to try it, so there's lots of things you can bring in from outside to to let you cast it. And it's basically trying to make a series of five rolls more exciting than just a series of five rolls, while adding lots and lots of flavor, and then setting up the possibility for those great sort of Karnacki or um, uh, devil rides out stories where you're the poor bastards in the pentacle and the demons coming from outside. And maybe you're not a goetic magician. Maybe you're just a a poor guy in a pentacle. um, And it it gives a a nice uh, extended mechanic for a pentacle defense uh, as well. So that is the missing uh, bit or one of the missing bits from my ability to turn Karnacki into a gumshoe source book.
0: So... uh... If you're going to uh, take all of these groovy, crunchy uh, mechanics and create a campaign frame that allows you to use them, uh, what are you going to go for?
1: I was looking because I thought surely since 1967 or whenever it was that James Blish wrote um, uh, Black Easter, someone must have done a Goetic Magic uh, fantasy series. No one has done it. Uh, The closest thing is John Whitbourne's uh, Dangerous Energy and similar stories, which are not goetic but are demon summoning and are very important demon summoning elements that there's just there there hasn't been any goetic magic so i think that you're sort of on your own i would sort of start with that hammer sensibility the devil rides out uh sensibility and uh black easter which has a a goetic magician who's hired by captains of industry to do evil things sort of maybe mix that up with a little uh, cronenbergian scanners so that there's these um uh these uh creepy goetists who are who are brought into the, the 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 machinations of power politics and the machinations of corporate politics, and then go nuts. I mean, you've got a, a world full of of evil people in expensive rooms summoning demons. I think that action can happen from there. You can certainly make a ring of necromancers a bad guy in a or of goetists. I guess necromancer is a. um well, anyway, we, we have no time for grammar at this point, but, no, we have grammar uh, not, not grammar. Right, exactly. A, a ring of necromancers or goettists can be the bad guy, uh, or can be a bad guy in your, Night's Black Agents game if you wanted to or, or even in Mutant City Blues because, you know, what's more fun as DC Comics discovered when they invented Felix Faust than having superheroes fight demons? I ask you.
0: Well, uh, if you want to break the whole premise of uh, Mutant City Blues, uh, go ahead and do so. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, the, the, the premise of Mutant City Blues is that you can always figure out what's going on and so introducing right. magic to that totally turns that on its head. So what I would go for uh, the... Idea that you suggested is you are anti-goetic troubleshooters in the modern age, and you are uh, freelancers who are employed by uh, today's big corporations in order to protect themselves from uh, magical predation. interference. So,
1: like, uh, like uh, computer security consultants. Yeah.
0: So it's the industrial esp- espionage goetic game. Is that uh, today that the supposed dangers? of uh, computer security threats are really hidden from the world is the fact that uh, it's really all the magical protections or lack of protections that make things happen. So that when uh, Walmart has thousands and thousands of customer credit cards exposed, really the problem is is that that's a numerological attack that has Mm -hmm. uh, exposed uh, people's uh, true numerological names to the ether and to demons who can prey on them And, uh, because of course, uh, you know, our real names don't matter anymore. What matters are our credit card numbers. That's the true connection to someone's soul in an ultra consumer society. So your job is to find out, uh, you know, Walmart hires you to go and find out, uh, who stole all the credit card numbers. And as they're busy, you know, talking to the, uh, financial companies and getting people issued their new numbers. And when you're waiting for a new number, your soul is kind of adrift and that's when demons can get at you. Uh, you're, goal is to then find out uh, of all those thousands of different uh numbers who summoned the demon to get at somebody in particular and can you go and save them and therefore uh save uh, walmart's reputation at the grand cabal uh that meets every year at the you know the bilderberg group is is really or the course,
1: bohemian grove of the yeah, giant bohemian
0: owl. grove that's with the giant owl that's really where the uh you know all the grand sorcerer's reckonings occur and that if you're not Holding up your part of the new world order by keeping the magic lattice uh, safe from outside predation, you're kicked out, and then that, and next thing you know, you're Radio
1: Shack, right? And uh, and you have to be sort of a a a grubby, um, uh, uh, unlicensed goetist uh, going around trying to solve crimes, uh, burn notice style, right?
0: And so uh, it's not particularly all that much fun, I don't think, to be taking part in all of the boardroom machinations. So you are the uh, high priced, ultra cool. Security consultant freelancers or perhaps the security department, uh, you know, you're, you're the guys who, I, I, I guess it's more sympathetic to be the high price freelancers. I think it's a mm-hmm. uh, darker and more satirical to be, you know, you are the, uh, Goetic
1: the, the house, uh, the, the house goetists of, for of um, uh, or... Chase Manhattan yes, or something. Yes, exactly. The um and and the the demons when you read them in the Lemegeton, they all have really practical sorts of concerns. Like you know they will um uh, they will uh help uh, you find a treasure or and that would be obviously revealing credit cards or they or they tell of, of past things or they tell you about the virtues of herbs, which would be the ingredient for the new pharmaceutical that's coming on the market. And so these demons have these specialties that are being, uh, you know, they're, they, they, they have to protect their brand in the new era just like everyone else does. And so the demons can act as sort of this satirical mirror of the corporations that are also using the demons to mess with the other corporations and the demons themselves are like oh no you don't want to call Asteroth. astroth is no good fornez that's the guy you want to call cuz he's a million times better and he's um uh, he's a marquee and he 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 can uh, he's forms as a sea monster so he's eco-friendly and he knows about the oceans and uh you know, and lots of uh, so the demons will have their own sort of marketing uh, approaches and making their own sort of offers which are of course also about getting uh the you know not necessarily the soul but a a um uh, a voting share if you will in human affairs so that they don't get caught out like they have a couple of times uh i think that that's that's another fun possibility i think you can definitely look look at things like the laundry novels uh by um uh, uh charles Strauss for uh, sort of a techno magic uh frame to to think about this sort of stuff in and then also uh the other great thing is that you can uh, like all good uh contemporary gaming you can use william gibson's uh, current events sort of uh novels as as the setting, because it's all uh, big industrialists flying each other around in private jets, and, and, and you can fun rip from
0: the from the business pages. So exactly. uh, the next time there's a big corporate scandal, uh, there's your next adventure hook. Is that you are mm-hmm. uh, uncovering the real world that is a cult world explanation a for demon world yeah <laughs> of uh you know the next enron or uh, or whatever that happens to be
1: yeah the actually the notion that the demon sigils are trademarks and they have to defend them there's an awful lot of fun going that's on that's why there. all
0: those new all the big uh silicon valley companies have these weirdo uh nonsense names is they're uh all foreshortened uh, versions
1: of their tame patron demons. That's right. At Glazia Labs, we will get it done. Right. Go to Glazia Labs. Yeah. No, actually, that's yeah, all kinds of fun. I, th- I think that uh, goetia certainly you can introduce into a into a game that's that's historically set. You can use it uh, alongside uh, uh, Scho- uh, School of Night. Um, characters in the Elizabethan time, because it's actually historically correct to do that. You can put it into a Victorian steampunky type game, because that's the great age when Goetia is coming back out into the West. Alistair Crowley and McGregor Mathers are translating the old Goetic tomes, usually badly. Um So there's lots of, of fun possibilities there. Carnacki, of course, gives it a good steampunk 20s, uh Call of Cthulhu type period. But yeah, the, the postmodern Goetia, the 21st century corporate scanners-slash- um, uh, William Gibson slash you know uh, sort of sort of your any film that Aaron Eckhart is in a suit in is sort of the the, the movie that that you might want to watch to get the um uh, to get the goetic juices the, the the corporate predatory uh, feel going on this.
0: Well, you'll just have to uh, write that campaign frame as uh, an upcoming Ken writes about stuff.
1: Upcoming Ken writes about stuff single the um uh, the corporate demon wars. Uh, Coming whenever I get a better title than that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we can't come up with the uh, Zinger titles on the fly, but I'm sure you'll come up with something.
1: I'm sure I will.
0: And on that note, I think what we've come up with is a complete podcast. So it's time to uh, exit stage left, uh, pursued by a summoned bear. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Game
1: Playwright. Scale Realms. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pell Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep the machine going by hitting
0: the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such fine patrons as Samuel Noyce. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or grimoire by advertising with us.
1: Grab the rate sheet at our site.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.